What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chat. This is episode number 164. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts. And joining me, as per usual, Ben Fisher. What's up, dude? Not too much. Uh, you ready to turn 30? Let's do it. I, I hear <laughs> that's when you like wake up uh, with like all these weird aches and your body just sweats for no reason. And um, yeah, I guess we're going into some weird, a weird year with uh, with magic, if that's the case. But uh, yeah, I, I hope my cards don't start sweating. I, I don't. I'm not sure how that'll affect the uh, the curling. Whether that'll make the the foil curling better or worse. Yeah, can you More imagine they just, they just stop? They stop curling, but they just start randomly sweating on you. Like <laughs> they start drooping a little bit, getting a like that. Maybe that the, the paint starts to run. Whatever. Yeah, <laughs> Let's get on with it. All right. On to our usual housekeeping. Of course, if you're not already in the Discord, do check that out. It's the best place to be to chat with us and the rest of the Traficionado community. Talk all things MTG there, trophies, discuss your picks, uh, chat about other random life stuff and, and whatever happens to be going on in our random channel. And you can check that out. The link to that is in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page. And if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draftshaftpod. Huge, huge thanks to each and every one of our patrons who continue to support us each and every week over there. Perks include things like a shout out on the show, our Draft Doctor series, stickers, show notes, our pre-show recordings, and our Draft Shaft Hero cards signed by us sent out to you along with a handwritten thank you letter. Again, you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash draftshaftpod. Patrons, you're the best. If one of you asked for, you know, my bones, I would give them to you. You, you have that on record. You can use this in a court of law. Wait, uh, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> cut that, cut that. Can we cut that? <laughs> Let's keep going. All right, on to our Cracker Draft type thing. This week, Ben, it looks like we've got one of the Magic 30 weird chaos draft kind of packs. Uh, not quite, although this is from a, an older set. This is Dominary United. Oh, it is just Dom United. <laughs> <laughs> Shows what you know. <laughs> Well, uh, th- this is a weird pack here. Um, most because a lot of these cards aren't actually that good. But there- there's a couple in here that stand out. Dom United is a fantastic draft set. Um, m- maybe one of my favorite ever. If there was a box that I wanted to just like have on reserve to fire one day for like just a fun draft, I, I think Dom United is one of them, the top picks. So uh, it is flashback on Arena as of recording. Hopefully it still is as of release. Uh, Semite Herbalist is out first. That's the one in the white 2-1. Whenever it becomes tapped, you can uh, scribe one and gain a life. So that, of course, works for attack, but that also works for enlist, which is not the best mechanic, and this is not the best card in that vector, but it does work sometimes. You know, if I'm playing like a black-white deck or a red-white deck and I need that extra playable, uh, this is fine. This next one is not, though. Griffin Protector, uh, three and a white, two, three flyer. When a creature ETBs, it gets plus one, plus one. It's on a term. Even unless you're playing like a really weird green, white tokens list um, with like multiple copies of the four mana sorcery that makes three one ones. But then your four drop slots getting kind of thick. I don't know. I've never played this card or, or missed it. Smash to Dust is next. That's the one in a red sorcery. Uh, you choose one. You either destroy an artifact, destroy a creature with Defender, or deal one damage to each creature your opponent's control. The uh, Anti-Wing Mantle Chaplain card. Uh, I think it's not available for best of three, so this isn't super relevant. I wouldn't recommend main decking this, but there are enough defenders in this format that sometimes red decks will main deck this and, and get lucky. Yeah, this is a card that like I read and I'm, or at least I see in the pack and my brain goes, ooh, a braid. And then it's like, right now this isn't a braid at all. So. <laughs> not quite. This next one, other people like a lot more than I do. Uh, it's Vine Shaper Prodigy. That's the one in a green 2-2 two, two with kicker one in the blue. Uh, when it ETBs, if it was kicked, you look at the top three and put one into your hand. I never liked this card. Um, at two mana, it's just bad. You know, two mana, two, two doesn't cut it in this set. And at four mana, you're playing a 
kind of like an organ hoarder, I guess, but it's just not, I don't know, something about it never felt great. You can play it in the big, like four to five color piles if you need an extra playable, but you'd rather have the, uh, what is it, the lizard, the, the one in the green where you can activate it and it gets pumped where uh, X is your domain and gets XX. That's the, the kind of auto-include two drop. I don't know, this is like a deceptive four drop in that deck, and it's just not that good there. So especially compared to some of the things you could be doing, like Wing Mantle Chaplain. Next up, Pixie Illusionist. That's the one mana, uh, one one flyer. Uh, and it has kicker for like three and a green or something. Uh, if an ETB's uh, kicked, it comes in with two counters on it. And you can tap it to make a land into the basic of any, uh, any type of your choice. This thing is kind of like a worst case scenario domain card. If you're playing like a blue, green, blackish domain deck that just didn't pick up enough mountains or planes, then and you're worried about affecting your mana base too much, but you do have some strong domain payoffs, you can play this. I don't, though. I think it's bad. Uh, I've liked it in the past, but I've also used it in weird ways, like to shut off my opponent's splash or something like, <laughs> isn't it, isn't like, it you control? Is it maybe I, maybe I'm just totally misremembering this card. There are cards that do that, but I think this uh, it is, yeah, it is your control. Never mind. I definitely didn't do that then. I'm just imagining <laughs> things. Uh, maybe you shut off your own splash. Could that be? <laughs> <laughs> I could see that lapse in judgment happening. Yeah. Uh, goblin picker is up. One on a red, two, two, you can pay a red, tap, discard to draw a card. Even in a format where you want to be drawing cards, this just didn't really do it. There's a similar card, a goblin that uh, it's an uncommon. It's very similar. It's also one on a red for a two, two, but you can pay a green for kicker. I think it's sprouting goblin, right? Uh, and when it ETBs, if it was kicked, you go and tutor up a land. Uh, that's way, way better. That That's one that lets you sack lands to draw cards. Uh, and that, you know you're getting kind of a little more land stuff going on. The kicker to get a land is good. It's a two for one. Uh, this one, I, I just don't like very much. I'll play it in like a red white deck. If I feel like I don't have inevitability. Uh, so like my worst red white decks, I'll put one of these in speaking of red white. I do want exactly one to two copies, uh, one copy, one of the half copies, maybe of heroic charge, which is our next, uh, our next one here Two white, white, uh, and it's kicker for one in a red creatures you control get two one until on a turn. And if it was kicked, they gain trample. Uh, this is maybe the, the most telegraphed card in the format. You can always tell when your opponent has it because they usually just count their mana. It's usually six and then they just swing with other creatures and you're like, all right, well, I'll set my blocks uh, according to whether they have heroic charge or not. Um, by the way, if, you, if that does happen, I recommend making only a couple blocks rather than setting your whole board up to die. Uh, that way, if they don't use it. Maybe you can punish them a little bit. If they do, they don't get to eat all your stuff for free. Uh, or you just don't die on the spot. You know, sometimes you do just die on the spot to this. That's how this card works. Red White can go super wide, uh, thanks to like the Kelvin Strike team. Uh, so then Heroic Charge is the perfect thing to follow that up. I remember using that card to just like play. I, I can't even remember if it was a red white deck or a green white deck that I was splashing white for, but I would like gum up the ground really badly, go wide, gum up the ground, and then just like wait out the game until I drew my one copy of heroic charge and just like, just totally destroy my opponent <laughs> yep. out of nowhere. Yep. Baird works really well with this too. That was the, uh, the vector uncommon for this. It was the one in a red two, two. And if a creature had a, like a buff to its power or toughness at the end of your turn, you got a one, one. So a good like play pattern is you just put a one, one counter on Baird early in the game. And then it's a three, three that makes a one, one every turn. And then eventually, like you said, you top deck your heroic charge or make a bunch of tokens in other ways and just swing out for a million. 
couple more comments here. There's Urborg Repossession. This is a good one. Uh, black Sorcery. It is kicker one of the green. You return target creature card from your graveyard to your hand and gain two life. And if it was kicked, you can get back an extra permanent. So that could be a saga or a land or something else. Um, very good card. The fact that it's one mana was pretty important. Um, it was tutorable with a Micromancer. Is that it? Uh, so then it was kind of like a nice little synergy piece there. Uh, every five color domain pile wants one to two copies of this. Uh, so picking it up early doesn't hurt, but I'm not taking it over like a good playable. That being said, there haven't been any yet. So this is probably my pick out of the pack so far. Yeah, I remember this being a fine card. Um, there are quite a few decks that like it. Pretty much all the domain card uh, d- domain decks like having an effect like this. So definitely one that uh, I think I'm with you in this pack uh, is probably where I'm at so far. And as a side note, straight up black green isn't really a deck. If you're playing right. black green, you're playing five colors. Yeah. Uh, last comment here is a uh, wooded ridge line. That's the red green tapped duel that has both uh, basic land types. It's pretty good, you know. You take these. Yeah, lands this was a nice highly. cycle. I was I was happy they did this where they printed these duels with the you know they're not true duels because they do enter tapped, but they're almost that right delayed true duels I guess. Um, having those those basic land types on the card are, is 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 massive in terms of you know being able to um, tutor up for different things like that and uh, yeah I mean it's fine it, this isn't cube I don't feel like you need to be picking up these duels early on in a, in the draft like this like it's not necessarily a set where I'm prioritizing these super highly to begin with so I'm probably still taking Urborg repossession here a cool thing about Dom was that a lot of the fixing for the five color decks um, Flurfurst Vine Wall uh, Weatherseed Treaty Death Bloom Gardener. Uh, all these things are green. So you could always add more basic forests to your deck, you know, to make sure you had enough green cards. So that meant that uh, the green duels were actually a little lower in my pick order than I guess like the teamer duels. You didn't need quite as much because you were usually base teamer anyway. And maybe sometimes you wanted to add more of those basics. So, um, you know, black and white duels, uh, the ones touching those colors, uh, those colors, and then maybe red and then blue and then green uh, would be my pick order. So this one isn't super necessary, but I think it's probably still the pick out of this pack. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I think I would probably still have taken the re- the Urborg repossession. I don't tend to highlight um, to value these too too highly, but I also kind of I don't know. I, I probably don't prioritize them properly just because I I kind of see them as in this format as like a dual color card. All right, onto our own commons. Thankfully, they're a little better. We've got a Bortog Bone Rattle up first. That's the six mana four four. ETB it reanimates something with mana value less than uh, your domain. Otherwise, it goes to your hand. Great card. Yeah, I love Bortog. Not just for the name, which is phenomenally fun to say, but it is. Uh, it is just a really good card. One of the best domain payoffs. And like, if you're running black green and you don't have one of these, you generally feel kind of bad about it. But when you do have one it's it's pretty reasonable to get the deck firing on all cylinders this is a multicolor card that i actually think i'm pretty happy to first pick oh Lots yeah the pack looks like but but bortux great yep uh this was uh this works really well with one of the best cards in the domain deck which is maria's outrider the uh four and a red four four etb uh domain you ping them for that amount straight to face and it has reached too. great card so that thing would usually etb and just smack them for five uh, then you're happy to trade it off because then you can either just get it right back with a Bortog Bone Rattle, hit them for another five straight to the face, or uh, get it back with like an Urborg Repossession. Uh, we have another high contender here, though, the Weather Seed Treaty. That's the uh, Tuna Green Saga, and it has read ahead, so you get to pick what stage it enters on. Uh, it starts by tutoring at a, a basic, 
The second chapter is you make a 1-1 one, one sapperling. And the third chapter is something gets plus X plus X, where X is your domain. Just a really good value card. This usually is like a... It's kind of like a two and a half for one, right? You're getting the land, you're getting the token, you're getting a pump, and it doesn't have to pump the token. It can pump like a flyer or a death toucher or a big trampler to make it even bigger. Uh, I think I would take this over board talk, to be honest. It, it just goes in more decks. Yeah, I think while I, while board talk is a card that I'm not upset the first pick necessarily, it does kind of lock you into moving toward the domain sort of strategy if you really want to use it. Again, not that you should marry your first pick, but if you want to stay open, I think uh, Weathersea Treaty is going to help you do that better than Bortug will. Yeah, plus, uh, you know, there's other ways to close out the game. You don't need Bortug Bone Rattle. You can just pick up some Mary's Outriders, but Weathersea Treaty, getting your, your domain online, ramping, every domain deck wants to do that. Well, uh, we've got some bangers as our last couple cards here. We've got Wingmantle Chaplain, the boogeyman of the format, Arguably the best card in the format by a lot. Uh, maybe. Uh, it's three and a white, 03, Defender. When it enters the battlefield, you make a 1-1 one, one Flying Bird for each creature with Defender you control, including itself, so you're always getting at least one. And then whenever another Defender enters, uh, you make a 1-1. One, one. This thing was nuts. Speaking of cards that are good to get back with, like, Bortuk and Urgborg uh, and oh, yeah. Repossession, uh, Wingmantle Chaplain is one of the best ones to loop and recur. Uh, in a game just before this, I had an opponent play this and make five birds. How do you beat that <laughs> besides smash to dust, which I was not playing main deck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it, there are, there have been a lot of stories about people hating this card and not liking the format because of what this card enabled. Uh, I think by the end of the format, we saw a pretty decent course correction in terms of the format, trying to correct itself. And I seem to remember wing mantle chaplain, not quite being the problem that it was at the beginning of the set, but it's still not really close in terms of it being like just in a vacuum like one of the best cards um i think when you when you can pair this with any defenders you're you're golden and you pretty much never get past these so it's it's kind of tough to pick them up later in the in the format or later in the draft i would definitely pivot off of weather seed here and just take the chaplain and try to put the defender deck together if it doesn't work you're not missing out on too much i guess again you know, not trying to marry your first pick, but there are tons of defenders in the set. And I think the deck works really well when you build it right. So I'm not really hesitant to just first pick this. Yep. There's also the, uh, what is it? Shieldmate Defender, the four mana 03 that tutors out another card with Defender. The reason this card was so busted was that you could have three copies of it in your deck because you could have one Wingmantle Chaplain, a couple tutors to go get it, tutors that synergize with the Wingmantle Chaplain. I thought this was a bug, a feature, not a bug of the format. I actually really liked that it had this. It's a defender's deck. Like, oh, how I love it. Does yeah, that you, know, you don't have to convince me. Um, yeah. I think it's great, and I mean, I think one of the complaints that the shield, the the shield mate or whatever it was called, had was that that was colorless, wasn't it? It was an artifact creature. Yeah, that did that. A shield wall sentinel. I'm, I think that was it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so a lot of people were complaining about that. That like it didn't really matter what other colors you were running. Like you, you just had these like colorless, and you could chain them. So typically the play pattern was like you pick up a couple of the shield walls. Yeah. And you just shield wall into shield wall into shield wall into wing mantle chaplain, make four birds go, and then your opponent's just like, oh, yeah. Uh, Okay. Now, okay, Wingmantle Chaplain, it had its fair share of haters out there. For those people, can I interest you in an Archangel of Wrath, our rare in this pack? It was the two white-white, three-four, flying lifelink. Uh, It is kicker for black and or red, so you can pay both. And uh, if it was kicked in either one, you'd get to deal two, and then because of its lifelink, gain two to any target. So this could be a five-mana, three-four ETB 
not lightning helix, baby lightning helix something. Uh, or you could uh, make it a six mana three, four flyer. The actual, well, what is it? War leaders helix, I think. Uh, deal four, gain four, uh, but spread among a couple more targets. So Archangel of Wrath was you know, one of the best cards in the set as well. I, I think it was actually number one in the end. Yeah, I don't remember the numbers well enough. Um, I think just on pure, like, I don't know. I think looking, I actually think it's kind of tough to pick between Wing Mantle Chaplain and Archangel of Wrath. Again, not really remembering the format super well, but I do remember the Wing Mantle Chaplain deck a lot. Ar- Archangel of Wrath, Wrath is phenomenal in any white deck. You're not wheeling either of the two cards, so you kind of have to plant your flag, take a stand here. But um, it does, I don't know if there's maybe a chance you get the Heroic Charge back if you take the Archangel of Wrath. Maybe that happens. Mm. There's not really anything else in the pack I'd want to see come back. Maybe a Smash to Dust, but like you can pick those up whenever so i'm not really worried about that either so i may take the archangel hoping to wield a heroic charge and just kind of go into red white here you don't have to go into red white you could potentially splash the the red kicker um and just end up in a different you know white flyers deck or something there's a lot you could do with archangel and come on it's a big bomb why not (laughs) yeah Uh, i love red white in this format so uh, and, and plus like you said you can pick up like a red black or a white black duel so that maybe you can get that extra kicker in there Personally, I would take the Archangel, but I would not fault anyone for taking the Wing Mantle. I would fault you for taking anything else out of this pack, though. Yeah, <laughs> it's not very close outside of those two. Yeah. All right, on to our Teferi Tibble. This is a Roses and Thorns style segment where Ben and I share high and low from the past week. Ben, how's it going? It's going. Uh, I'm a little under the weather still, unfortunately. Got a bit of a cold. Um, trying to not sniffle on the podcast, and it's, it's working so far. Uh, but I learned something pretty cool uh, this week. Our Spotify rating. It's a 4.9. Who would have thought? That's <laughs> true. Yeah, not not the most uh, actual ratings there. So if you do listen on Spotify and you haven't rated it, go ahead and throw in your rating out of out of five stars. That would be awesome. Um, but I will say, Ben, technically speaking, though our sample size is much lower, we do technically have a higher rating than limited resources. Just saying. Just saying. I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying we have a better show than them. But well, Spotify you know. Is. <laughs> Certain, certain <laughs> metrics, <laughs> certain <laughs> metrics can be can be cherry picked. And, uh, you know, what the Spotify users say, the Spotify users say. So uh, like, comment and subscribe, please. If you could go and uh, review bomb us or wait, what's it called when you review bomb in the positive direction? Is that also review bombing? I don't think so. Hmm. I don't know. Well, whatever it is, go do it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, uh, my my tibble this week is similar. Uh, something that you actually brought up to me that it, it's kind of a bummer. Those that listen on Spotify, if you go into the more like this tab on Spotify, which you can find from the draft draft main Spotify page, uh, it's not, you know, our, our fellow limited compatriots. It's not the other, you know, draft lovers. It's um podcasts such as, uh rv life um analog photography uh a dog themed science podcast i think a second van podcast (laughs) oh yeah and and a podcast called murder hobos all one word uh that that looks pretty interesting a historical biography podcast about men at arms and masculinity through history interesting uh an ohio politics explained podcast Are, are you people seeing this let us know in discord if this is coming up for you uh zach mentioned that you know, when you go into like the other ones and you go into like LR or something and they're more like this tab, it's got like limited level ups and, and those types. Um, but yeah, for some reason, podcasts. yeah, we're in our own little bubble here. I don't know what's up with that. 
uh, curious to hear if that, that's true for the listeners too, or if it's just for us, or maybe it, it can't be based on individual history if it's the same for both of us, right? It must be something else. No, it I should don't know. be based on, I originally thought it was based on um, the, like you can tag your show with certain um, categories. And so our show is tagged under games and hobbies. I assumed that it was related to that. It clearly isn't. And so maybe there's some misconfiguration on the way we set things up. Um, but we are trying to get to the bottom of that. Cause I think that may hurt, uh, I don't know if shareability is the right word, but discoverability perhaps, uh, in terms of like new folks finding the show based on, you know, other shows they listen to. So mm-hmm. I'm not so sure anybody who listens to murder hobos wants to hear us talk about <laughs> limited. <laughs> now the real question is on, on the murder hobos main page, are we in the recommended? Let me check uh, while I do that. What's up with you? So, yeah, I mean, Teferi, obviously all the magic news that we've got, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Uh, pretty awesome to hear lots of updates and frankly, some pretty exciting ones. I also saw Oppenheimer last night, which was phenomenal. We'll save all my thoughts and well, maybe not all my thoughts, but we'll save my thoughts on that to the sign off. I think my tibble is that, um, well, I'm, I've been pretty exhausted today and that's because I saw Oppenheimer last night. I saw a 1045 PM showing, Oh, which geez. means I didn't actually get home until about three in the morning. So yeah. Yeah. How'd you, uh, I mean, it's not hard to stay awake during Oppenheimer. It's loud. It's in your face. It's tense, but, uh, still, how'd you stay awake? Uh, I did have a cup of, like a full cup of coffee about 20 minutes before leaving. So I had some caffeine running through my system that definitely helped. I did think it was weird when I was awake still because I'm I'm nuts, but I did think it was weird when you texted me at like two thirty or three yeah, in the morning. Was, I was yeah, like, it was like right when I got home. I think it was two thirty in the morning. Yeah, I was like, that's kind of weird, but uh, I was like already half asleep. So, yeah, I I had um I guess I'll throw this in as part of the tibble too. Uh, there was like this this two these two guys in the theater that were like a handful of seats to my left that were having like a full on conversation, not whispering or anything, uh. but just like talking in the middle of the movie. And it was so frustrating. Like I for like, I, I know like people weren't seeing movies in theaters for a little while, but it's been a couple of years. Theaters have been open for a little while. How do we just completely forget movie etiquette? Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah honestly, they got shushed by multiple people throughout the film. And that was not a movie that you want to be, uh, you want your immersion broken from. Cause it's like, like no. you said, very intense, very in your face. There are some very emotional scenes. Yeah, uh, to echo it, during the two times that I've seen Barbie now and the one time I saw Oppenheimer, same thing. People on their phones in every single showing. Not so much conversations, although there was someone at Oppenheimer that was, uh, I think they were there by themselves. Um, they, they were kind of talking to themselves at some points. Uh, <laughs> like at, at a, it's Oppenheimer. We know it's about the bomb. At a certain point, they said aloud to themselves in the theater, boom <laughs> at a very key moment <laughs> it, it was mostly harmless it was more funny than anything else but um i don't know I, i've always wanted to go to like an alamo draft house which i know gets some hate for being maybe a little snooty but uh you know if you talk during one of the movies they will straight up kick you out yeah um the, the last bit of my my tibble actually i added while we were in the middle of recording because i had to step away for a moment which you won't hear because we do some editing, but I had to step away. And as I did, I realized my dog for the second time has chewed a hole in my rug in the living room. (laughs) And I don't know how to stop her from doing this. Like she did it a while ago, months and months ago. And I think I thought back then that it was because maybe I had spilled some coffee and didn't realize it. And she thought it tasted good. So she just started like, and I have like kind of a shag rug. So it's got like longer, like 
frilly material on it, I guess. And she just like ate a hole of that. So there's like a big blue patch of the, the material, like the rough material of the rug underneath the stuff that's actually supposed to be visible. Um, and she just did that again. And I don't know what was there that caused her to like, Hey, I'm just going to eat this rug. She's the coolest. She, she, I feel like she does very little except for sometimes she does something very funny. And that, that's about as good as a dog can have it. Right. I, I mean, I guess that wasn't cool. She ate my rug, dude. <laughs> like she does nothing she doesn't pay rent she doesn't like work she doesn't help me with the groceries or do like the you know clean the apartment or anything she just loafs around eats my food and well eats her food i don't let her eat people food but and then like just has this nice place to herself and maybe this is her protesting you know this is her saying Dude, um, although I did, I will say I did lose her, her crate. I think I mentioned that on the show a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Maybe she's yeah. just like really pissed that I haven't replaced it yet. <laughs> so she's like, Hey, I'm just going to eat your rug until you give me my home back. <laughs> anyway, rant aside, let's get on to our listener question of the week. This week, our question comes from Calcifer and Calcifer asks, how do you optimize for arena premiere events and or limited events? This could be gems or gold economy, but could also be time slash practice economy. Any advice for improving at this optimization? I'd love to go optimal, but we can't all be Ryan Spain out here. <laughs> Though apparently True. in Lord of the Rings, Ben has the secret to optimal trophy work. Eh, guilty. <laughs> yeah, I uh, mean, um, thanks, the whole Galsifer. go optimal thing is, uh, I think, a lot more difficult to do uh, than it is to see it laid out on paper. Cause I think mathematically it's very easy to say like, Oh, I just have to do X, Y, Z. And then, you know, I'll go optimal and I never have to pay for a draft again. Yeah. In practice though. It's, you actually have to maintain quite a high win rate to keep that going. And yeah, even for someone who <laughs> does win a good amount of games, it could be hard, you know, to still always have gems in the, in the bank, right? We're not all uh, arena grinders who get, you know, like stocked wizards accounts every once in a while. Um, although I think they only keep those for the, the, the pre you know pre, yeah. pre-release or whatever it is um anyway yeah uh honestly all right so, so let's get one thing out of the way sometimes you'll find a format and it's just your format right lord of the rings i had a really hot run on was able to go pretty uh pretty infinite on that it's happened a couple times before where sometimes i'll just have a strong run it happened in dmu with red white happened uh Zendikar I, rising was another one for you that i remember being pretty solid yeah Zendikar Rising, the uh, the now. first couple editions of the Arena Cube. I've since gone a lot lower uh, down on the Arena Cube now that they've put this these like alchemy things in there, and I can no longer just play red green and win every game. But th- there was a time when I played like Arena Cube, and I had like I think I got like seventy thousand gold from it. Just like oh, I remember, playing. yeah, you you went crazy infinite on that. Yeah, I had like a ninety percent win rate or something. That was a lot of fun, but they've since fixed slash balance slash. <laughs> Made it a little more applicable to everyone's play styles, you know. Uh, but anywho, that aside, sometimes that will just happen. Um, and you can go infinite from that. And then you've just got excess gold for entering premier events and limited events, right? But otherwise, let's look at something like uh, the Arena Opens, right? Uh, those things cost a good amount to enter. What is it? 5,000 per entry or uh, 20,000 gold. Uh, 5,000 gems to 20,000 gold, right? So you could buy your way in, right? I think it ends up being if you buy... Um, gems in like the most efficient way to just meet the 5,000 minimum. Maybe you have some laying around. You can usually spend between 30 to $50 to buy yourself an entry. And for some people, that's, you know, a perfectly reasonable way to like pay to enter a limited event. I would totally pay between 30 and $50 to enter a premier limited event at a local game store, for example. I see no problem with that. And if I can do it from the comfort of my couch, then, you know, that's even cooler. So th- that's one thing. But I-, I then look at it as how can I reduce that amount that I need to pay for that? Well, maybe if I have, I don't know, 1,500 gems laying around that I might 
be considering entering like a premiere event. Maybe if it's a premiere event format that I know hasn't been my best or that I uh, maybe I, I've, I'm out of practice or I haven't kept up with the meta or I haven't been listening to podcasts and like uh, staying up to date on like the, the best things to do in the format. Maybe I'll be like, well, there's that arena open next week. Maybe these gems would be better served just holding on to them. You know, not risking losing uh, some and, and going down or losing them all for uh, the rare O3. But um, maybe I'll just hold on to them and use them to enter the format instead, taking a chunk out of what I'd have to pay for the usual cost of entry. That being said, I do usually have to to buy my way into arena opens. Um, you know, in those arena opens, uh, I guess another note about the premier events. If you play best of three, uh, the gem payout is a lot better. For example, you can not make day two and still have enough gems to re-enter day one while doing best of three. Whereas best of one, it's very hard to make back any gems you get from your entry. Yeah, that said, I, I think that really applies mostly to the arena opens. If we're talking about just traditional or premier events in limited on like a day to day, you just jump in the queue right now and you want to go play some limited. Um Unless you have what I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, and we probably could have researched this for the show here, but um, unless you have something approaching, I think a sixty percent win rate or maybe even a little higher, best of three is typically not going to pay out. Um, on average, you'll probably go under the gem entry amount. Um, whereas premier, if you've got, it's a little more forgiving in premier because you have the extra loss and you only need to get what like five wins, I think, to to Something break like that, even, yeah. and then anything above that, you're you're net positive um we all know look we all know that the sort of gem gold economy in terms of event costs to rewards given isn't great like wizards could do a lot to make that more amenable to players but i think when it comes to going optimal or at least going infinite or or some combination of i think you know the average listener here is is really thinking how do i just not have to pay for drafts i don't really care about these big like premier events in terms of, you know, the arena opens or maybe even qualifiers. Like I just want to sit down and draft once a day and not have to pay for it. Um, there are a couple of things you can do, right? You can kind of go down this route of optimizing gems versus gold. Certain events, it's better to hold on to gold for versus spending your gems. Like typically I like to hold on to my gold so I can use it for arena opens. Whereas I'll use gems in my like regular drafting just to, because you can like accumulate those um, and gold's a little bit harder to actually get back because there are fewer events that reward gold. You basically only mm-hmm. get gold from your dailies and then like some of the metagame challenges or like standard cues and stuff will give you gold. But like when you're, if you're drafting, you're pretty much always getting gems and payouts. So I'd rather use that resource to earn more of the same resource and then use the gold later on an event that like maybe I can't get um, those gems back. And then, yeah, really it comes down to practice and, and, and kind of timing. Um, at at the end of the day, you need a, you need a solid win rate. And I think to Ben's point, like figuring out the set and knowing when a set is for you and when it's not can help with that. Uh, sometimes when a set isn't really going my way or I'm not, you know, it doesn't click after like maybe half a dozen drafts or so, I might just put it down because, either unless I'm like incredibly enjoying it. And even if I'm not winning to me, I, I end up just kind of wasting gems uh, on a set that I know I I'm not really getting until I, you know, maybe a conversation with Ben or listening to some other podcast or something, make something click. And I'm like, Oh, okay, let me go approach this, this format differently. But when you have those sets that click, you kind of just fire on all cylinders and you can just chain them together. There's also ways to improve your win rate that don't involve spending gems on drafting, right? You could do draft Sims or uh, maybe, you know, just, fire some proxy drafts with friends, things like that. 
honestly, I, I get a lot of practice just doing practice draft sims uh, that you know aren't on Arena. Draft sim, literaldraftsim.com is like a good way to do this. Um, reading articles uh, to help. Uh, honestly, there's a lot of free stuff you can just find on Twitter. It's random Twitter threads uh, about cards that are over or underperforming. Studying the 17 lands data also comes in here. And uh, my last note on this would be uh, I'm, I'm pretty intentional with how I craft uh, and spend my wild cards. Yeah, there's uh, a lot I, of optimization I, you can do there. Yeah, I make sure for whatever set I'm drafting at the time, uh, usually whatever is like the set and standard rotation, uh, I will go in and I will, you know, craft up as many of the rares and mythics as I can, such that when I start taking them in draft, uh, that way I... Uh, I get gem rewards from them because it hits the fourth, uh, the fifth copy limit. I get rewarded with gems instead. So something Ryan Spain would recommend is that you actually sometimes exit your draft, uh, craft up, and then take that and then like rejoin the draft, then pick that one rare that maybe came around late. Uh, I'll usually just try to craft the ones that I know I won't be playing that often. Uh, like a, maybe a seven mana mythic, like a, like March of the Ants, last March of the Ants or something, like something that you were not going to play that often. At the beginning of the format, I might go in and be like, all right, this card, it's probably not going to be that great, right? Uh, I'll go craft four of them. And that way I know that when I get one like 12th pick, I'm actually getting gems from it instead. So I, I found that to be a, honestly, sometimes I'll take like, I don't know, I took like a Shadow of the Enemy with like five cards left in the pack. Or shadow of Mortar, Shadow of the Enemy, whatever that like six mana black mythic is called. I took one with like six cards left in the pack. I knew I wasn't going to play it, but uh, that or some like fringe playables, I was just like, yeah, give me 40 gems. <laughs> yeah, and that adds up. And then I think also um, the other bit, you can you can do the same actually, by the way, with uh, commons and uncommons. You don't get gem rewards for for maxing those out, but you do get vault progress, which will give you wild cards and such, which will then let you craft rares, which will give you gems. So you can you can do a lot of that too. I, I've seen a lot of people actually try if you grind enough on a given set, and a lot of content creators do. I don't even think Ben and I quite grind enough to get Ben. Maybe uh, I know I don't um, enough to where like every set you just craft the whole set or very close to like the full set of commons and uncommons. Um, and then you're just getting tons of vault progress as you draft more and more. Um, that's, that's another option there as well. Um, but I, I will echo the draft sim and such, get familiar with the set, make sure you're actually like paying attention to the way the meta shifts and not just like, you know, drafting on rails from the beginning of the set to the end. Um, maybe we should make a, a sub series in the show where we, we talk a little bit more about like, not necessarily optimization because it's kind of off brand for us, but uh, going suboptimal. Like <laughs> yeah. Like, like just getting, getting to the point where you can make, you know, draft a day once a day for, for free, basically let us know in the discord. If you, if you would like to hear us talk about this topic more. Yeah. Great question. Calcifer. Thanks again. All right. On to our main topic this week, we had, and actually Ben and I are recording earlier than our usual recording cadence. Cause this is hot off the presses. So this, this, year i guess magic officially turned 30 and really it was this past week at gen con and so their 30th anniversary event at gen con went through a ton of new information there's basically like three years worth of magic information that we got that we are going to just kind of walk through digest on this episode um ben and i will share our sort of first thoughts on a lot of very hot takes super hot just like yeah. the most lukewarm takes ever <laughs> um, <laughs> uh and and then so we'll go through all the all the new information that you got we'll try to keep it organized um the actual reveal was not very organized so it's hopefully haphazard. this helps you kind of figure out what 
actually was announced and what wasn't. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we'll give like our overall thoughts on these things. Ben and I are going to have a pretty candid conversation here about these things because we haven't talked about them yet. Um, so we hope you enjoy. First of all, I do want to say that I, I think Magic is firmly the best game ever made. Um, it, it's entertaining. It's fun. People love it. It's changed lives for the sure? better. <laughs> Wizards, please notice us. Uh, no, uh, I, I do genuinely love it. And uh, honestly, here's for 30 more. So uh, they kind of presented things chronologically. We took this chronological and broke it down into some sections. So let's start by talking about the story. Let's get some, some flavor town up in here. Uh, there's a new three-year story arc. Now that we've kind of wrapped things up with the, uh, the Phyrexians, uh, and this th- new three-year story arc is going to be comprised of three-year-long mini-arcs. Um, first, we're starting with Wilds of Eldraine, which is beginning the Omen Path arc. We already saw some of this, right? Towards the end of March of the Machine and Aftermath, where... Uh, Looks like some some planeswalkers got desparked. Almost all of them got desparked, but not all. Looks like maybe one ish per set still. So planeswalkers have kind of been de-emphasized, which is interesting. Curious to see where they go with this. I'm cool with it, uh, especially if it opens it, up. Yeah. yeah, especially if it opens up new design space. Honestly, it feels like this is the result of. For for a while, we all were saying like, "All right, the Gatewatch, enough of that." You know, yeah. like the. The uh, Planeswalker Avengers team, we're getting kind of sick of it. Let's get something else going here. Let's see some legends, some non-walkers, some everyday people, maybe. Um, a little yeah, more relatable. I think the other thing, too, they like for a while. And if you're newer to magic within the last like year or two, you probably don't remember this or know about this. But for a while, it's when they when they started the Gatewatch thing, which really started with Battle for Zendikar like a long time ago. Um when they started this whole Gatewatch thing, they started printing the same Planeswalkers every set. Like we were over getting like a Jace over. almost every set. We were getting a Chandra almost every set. We got a, th- a few Gideons, a handful of Nissa. Like they just kept printing those Planeswalkers and people eventually were just like, okay, we're sick of seeing the same characters in every set. Can we please see new Planeswalkers? I don't even think the ask what yet was for non-walkers. It was really just like, can we just get, if you're going to print Planeswalkers, Give us new ones. We're tired of seeing Jace every set. Yeah. Then we started, they were like, okay, we hear you, but the way they make magic sets, they're always a few years ahead of what's actually being released. So it took about two years for that actually to catch up. And then by the time we got there, people were like, okay, we're sick of planeswalkers. Can we like reduce this? And then we got the March and the Sheen thing. They actually figured a way to make it work. Um, but we've seen magic now doing this sort of longer story arc. We had... Um, we had we had the Bolas arc, right, that ended in War of the Spark with this massive sort of set that brought the whole thing together. And then now we just got the March of the Machine sort of Phyrexian uh, arc. This new one, starting with Wilds of Eldraine, is, again, a three-year story arc. And I, I don't... I think this may be the longest one. I don't think Bolas or the Phyrexians were quite three years long. But, I don't know. Time flies. I forget. Yeah. <laughs> in, e- in either case... Um, we have these three sub arcs within those. So as Ben mentioned, there's the one year sub arcs for each uh, of the three years that, that will take this whole arc. Wilds of Eldraine starts the Omen Path arc, as they're calling it, where we're seeing non-legends able to travel between planes. Yeah. So this opens it up for both former planeswalkers to travel between planes still. Maybe if they miss planeswalking, it sounds like Chandra and Nissa are doing something like that right now. But this also opens up for legends to maybe hop between planes. Uh, sounds cool. Interested to see where they go with this. Uh, next up, Mark mentioned something called a backdrop set. Maybe a, a bit of a newer take on how they could uh, 
both utilize an existing world and then also give it a fresh look. So uh, we're actually going back to Ixalan and Ravnica coming up, uh, Lost Caverns of Ixalan, and then followed by Murder at Karlov Manor. But these aren't going to be themed like the usual Ixalan set. It's not just Dinosaurs Part 2 or Guild Set number whatever. Uh, Lost Caverns of Ixalan apparently was supposed to be on on an entirely different plane, but then they realized they could just use, you know, Ixalan as the overall setting, uh, just take an entirely different twist on it with maybe few to no returning mechanics, uh, but still dinosaurs. Same with Murder at Karlov Manor. This is a top-down, like, mystery murder set. So it's not going to be a guild set, apparently. There will be, you know, Ravnica influences on it. But it sounds like it might be... Uh, there's not going to be the usual, uh, like, maybe 10 guilds, each with their own mechanic. It's going to be something a little different. Uh, also, a cool little side note, they mentioned that the entire Phyrexian arc is now available as an ebook in one convenient place. So if you want to catch yeah. up on the Phyrexian lore, uh, that seems like a good way to do it. Yeah, they that's really cool. I mean, the, with the War of the Spark, they actually printed physical books. I wasn't a fan. I read the first one and wasn't a fan of it, so I never picked up the second. But it's nice that they just kind of smashed them together in an ebook and just made it publicly available. Um, so if you didn't catch the, the story for the Phyrexian arc and you weren't sure where to find all the different p- things, you can now get it in one spot. So we mentioned that the first year of this arc, this new three-year story arc is called Omen Path. We don't exactly know what that means, but obviously it has to do with folks still being able to cross planes even without planeswalking in the traditional sense. The second year's arc is called Dragonstorm. We got next to no information about it, and we'll talk a little bit about some information that we did get in a bit, but that is uh, the, the second arc in this the second mini arc in this big arc. The third one, they said they couldn't even tell us what it's called because it would spoil too much. So we won't get any information about that probably until my guess is probably until like this time in 2025 or so. Yeah. Dragonstorm can mean a couple things. First of all, Dragonstorm is a magic card. It's a storm card that makes dragons. Uh, But second, maybe more lore wise, all dragons and magic are birthed from the mythical Dragonstorm, which it's a little hazy. Uh, we got some insight into it when um, Ugin and Bolas, when their like kind of early story yeah, was in gone into a couple of years ago. Yeah, no, something like even, that. Yeah, I think it was after. It was like it was, M19 it or M- M20. It was one of those core sets. Yeah. So we, we learned that they were born along, you know, some of the similar uh, like early primeval elder dragons. Uh, not sure if this dragon storm is like a planeswalking entity. But they kind of pointed to maybe, if I remember right, like this magical dragon storm is like the progenitor of all dragons that just kind of pops from plane to plane, spits out some dragons and moves on to the next one. I don't know. Maybe we'll get some some more lore into that. Maybe Bolas is back. Maybe Ugin's alive again or dead or spiritified. Who knows? Uh, Anyway, the lore, it seems like it's in a a good place, right? They mentioned in one of their... um, their earliest announcements that uh, they wanted to keep emphasizing magic story that they know they're dipping into some universes beyond stuff and they're bringing in other IPs, but they're still dedicated to making sure magic's existing IP uh, continues to be great. So I don't know. I feel like it's in good hands, but uh, eh, you know, <laughs> did you see, we'll, we'll see, I don't know if you saw this, Ben, there was, there was a, a fan theory floating around Twitter yesterday where someone was saying basically that they, they think that Bolas created clones of himself that are rest, like basically hibernating or asleep on Amonkhet, oh. and that we're going to they'll we're going to go back to Amonkhet. They're going to those those clones are going to basically wake up and 
start trying to do bolusy things before they step on each other's toes and then just go go to war with each other. And then we have this big multiversal bolus war that like all the the boluses are trying to destroy <laughs> the other. I, I'm not huh. so sure I buy it, but uh, I wouldn't hate a return to Amonkhet, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, now we should also mention that while they gave us all this information, they also mentioned, I think they, they said explicitly, this is magic. Like there will be surprises along the way. So while this yeah. is a good overview of all the you know sets that are coming out, uh, we can expect maybe a couple more surprises here and there. Well, speaking of new sets, why don't we jump into, they, they actually explicitly announced quite a few new sets and then they teased a bunch that they didn't really talk too much about. So let's dive into those. Yeah, so some of the upcoming sets are going to have uh, something I'm kind of excited for called Special Guests. These are high-priority reprints uh, that will be themed to the plane of the set. So it sounds like they're going to show up in collector boosters and also on the list. So they might be a little hard to get. You're not going to open them in draft boosters. But for paper players, um, you know, the more of that type of thing, the better. Plus the list cards, they show up more than you think. You know, every once in a while, I'll just open a random rare and it's just a list rare. And I'm like, all right, that's there. Those can just show up in random packs. Yeah. So we're getting a Ravnica remastered set, which is pretty awesome. It's kind of in the same vein as Dominaria remastered. And I'm hyped for that. I, I think there's a lot more, obviously, from Ravnica that, well, maybe not lore wise. Dominaria has been around a long time in the lore, but we have a lot more Ravnica sets to play around with, um, like dedicated Ravnica sets. So uh, I'm curious to see what they bring back from like the original guilds of Ravnica sets, like the original Ravnica block basically, um, and see kind of what, uh, what that looks like. But yeah, I'm pretty excited. I don't recall them saying that Ravnica remaster. I think this one won't be available on arena. Yeah. Uh, I, I do want to mention, I think there's like 50 or so sets that are set on Dominaria. It's just that they're kind of unfocused, right? you know, yeah. but th- this one Ravnica, I think is at least in the modern era, this will feel a little more, you know, maybe single focused uh, and, and maybe a little more familiar to some of the, the players that started more recently. Yeah, this one's not going to be on arena, but uh, it does have old border cards, including old border yeah. shocks. That's yeah, big. which is pretty cool. The set after that will be uh, murders at Karlov Manor. That, that seems fun. Uh, this is the top-down murder mystery. It's, like like we mentioned, not a guild set. Like uh, Maro said, if you want a guild set, you know, Ravnica Remastered. That's what that's there for. That's going to have the classic, like, guild play that you're used to for a Ravnica set. So that opens uh, murders for uh, Karlov Manor to be something different. They, they emphasize that there'd be murder mysteries for the players to solve, both in-game and, you know, lore-wise. So maybe we'll see, like, a a battle that involves solving or maybe you have to figure out what a creature card is or there's like a guess who mini game or something inside uh, who knows should be fun yeah i'm almost thinking about like something um adventures-esque like from uh, adventures and forgotten realms but maybe the riddles you have to solve i guess they would have to have them be such that like they change from game to game otherwise that'll get really boring really fast but yeah yeah i'm curious to see what they do with that after we go to ravnica with murders at Karlov manor we got a slew of new, completely new planes. One of which, uh, the set is called Outlaws of Thunder Junction. Ben and I were talking in the pre-show about whether or not Thunder Junction's the name of the plane. It kind of feels like it isn't, but uh, it sounds like it is from the set name. Anyway, we finally got Cowboys and Magic. Yep. I mean, we just talked about this on the show, right? I hope they take some of our advice because we had some pretty sick, uh, <laughs> some sick vectors to, to offer them. Uh, I don't know. Yeehaw, right? <laughs> this will be good. Sounds like uh, lore-wise villains from across the multiverse are gathering for like a maybe like a wild west uh summit 
I don't know, they're all going to yeah. gather and talk about the best ways to be evil, or maybe they're going to fight amongst themselves. Now, there was one piece of promo art that they revealed. Uh, pretty clearly, Tiny Bones is there. Tiny Bones has gone through the omen paths. And so it looks like a couple I did other... See, I, I saw a handful of folks say, that's got to be Tiny Bones, right? But I think, like, unless they're just going to retcon the previous printing of Tiny Bones... The actual like scaling of the characters in that art <laughs> that looked way too big to be tiny bones. Yeah, but there was like a it looked like a skeleton, and they were tiny. I, I'm yeah. I'm gonna guess it was tiny bones, tiny bones, and they are retconning. But something that I'm a little unsure about, though, some of them are pretty clearly like Obnixilus was there. It was obviously Oko, but then there were three other figures. One kind of looks like Nico Eris, uh, who we met briefly after their spark ignited on Theros. Uh, but they have these like these kind of shards that they can summon and shoot and trap people in. Uh, but they weren't really a villain. They, they were kind of just like awoken and wanted to go off in the multiverse to find their destiny. Uh, but there's someone who kind of looks like they have those shard, like those same shards, uh, maybe attached to their back in like a a sling or something. So not sure if Nico is swapped sides here. I don't know what's going on there. Also, hey, kind of looks good like cowboys though. I I don't know that like Jace also was I think in that promo art. Vraska was definitely in it, unless it's some random other Gorgon. But yeah, this is where I take a bit of issue. Jace, we know. Spoiler alert for the uh, you know mom finale, but you know you you can go pause now, read the entire ebook, and then come back and play. Uh, Jace, we know, is out there somewhere. They're not killing off Jace. That's impossible. But he was Frexianized. And from what we've learned, it does take a little bit of work to de-Frexianize someone. I mean, some people had to die and Karn lost his spark over it. Uh, but there's also Vraska. And I got to say, if, if both Jace and Vraska are still alive, then that does negate the emotional story beat of their final love encounter Uh inside Vraska's dying mind, which was an awesome story. Really liked it. Yeah. Uh, I liked it more because I thought she was dead at the end. And if this is her back, I would be a little bummed. I don't know. Let the past die, you know? <laughs> yeah, I don't like this kind of storytelling, to be honest. It just like makes all of the actual stakes just disappear. Like there's just no right. reason to feel emotionally attached to anything. There need to be like, well, nothing actually happens. Nothing matters. So why get it? Why get attached to it? Maybe it's a random different Gorgon. Maybe Jace has some weird like <laughs> thing for Jace for Gorgons has a type. Now. Um, <laughs> and Hey, I guess more power to him. Um, I kind of wish they just killed him off too, to be honest with you. But uh, <laughs> Whoa. From, from the Jace yeah, fanboy number one over here. I know. Um, but Hey, we know Jace on Ixalan. He got shredded. He's a pirate. Now he's going to be a gunslinger. Like maybe they're just going to make him like this dude who just goes through all these different like, uh, uh, transformations, like with his characters. Like, I'm just going to be a gunslinger now. Next, I'm going to be a death racer. Like who knows? Um, <laughs> he's like Samurai Jack. He gets trained in every single discipline <laughs> until he's yeah, mastered yeah. them all. Uh, the set after that, pretty exciting. Modern horizons three. So we actually, you know, that this is, I don't even know, we shouldn't be talking about this yet, but can I, can I tell them? I, if you must. Mayor's going to get mad at us, but if you must. We already have a preview card from Modern Horizons 3. Uh, it, it's, it's a zero mana evoke Raghavan. And on the backside, it flips into <laughs> Raghavan as a planeswalker. <laughs> And uh, the the planeswalkers uptick is that you get to punch your opponent in the face, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, Modern Horizons three will be great. Uh, they're advertising it as Modern Horizons now with double faced cards. So 
curious to see where they uh, where they go with that. It sounds like they have explicitly confirmed that there will be creatures that flip into planeswalkers. So you know, the, people that might have been worried that they were get rid of, uh, getting rid of the planeswalker brand entirely. No, magic is still about planeswalkers, right? You, the player, are a planeswalker too. So they're still incorporating some cool things there. Interested to see where they go with that. Um, I don't know when when they have the chance to use the modern horizons uh, layout, they can really push some card designs and they can really push the limited format. And the coolest thing is that it's coming to arena like MH2. Yeah. If that had been on arena, I don't think I would have ever touch another set. I would have just played MH2 all day. Uh, it, it was a really cool and interesting draft set. MH3. Well, we all get to play it on arena. It might be the, the highest complexity set we get to draft on arena or the, the one with the most, I don't know. This is one for the, for the hardcore heads, you know, like I'm, I'm very excited for this. Uh, hopefully because it's coming to arena, it's also, uh, I guess accessible to everyone. Yeah. I would think, you know, I'm going to be really bummed if they decide to put a premium on entry fees on this, on MH3 in arena. Cause it's like, they're all just digital cards. Like, yeah. you know, with, I'm sure the paper drafts are going to be more expensive. Like commanders, Ma- commander masters was, MH2 was always more expensive than like a traditional standard set. Hopefully in arena, that's not the case, but it's really cool that they're bringing a set like this that doesn't really have a home in arena. Like modern's not a playable format in arena. It's really cool that they're still bringing these cards in and I'm excited to see what the format looks like. Well, modern isn't, you know, a format historic is getting scarier. Yeah. I learned uh, earlier today that Yogmoth, Theron Physician, is on Arena. That must have gotten slipped in in one of the recent historic anthologies. But uh, I mean, this basically means that the Yogmoth Hospital deck is on there. There's plenty of sack outlets. Yeah. There's plenty of things that interact with minus one, minus one counters. I got infinite comboed out by Hapatra uh, plus Yogmoth, And they're even playing like the one mana mana dorks, like uh, Delighted Halfling that the actual modern lists are playing. So uh, historic is... I don't know. Maybe maybe I've been misjudging there. it. Yeah, uh, I've been playing this historic Gates deck with Primeval Titan and Mazes End and Hydroid Crisis. Uh, that that's a, a pretty strong list too. Yeah, I wonder if the plan is for them to actually convert. So like that, you we've seen Explorer is slowly getting closer to Pioneer, and I wonder when Pioneer mm-hmm. is like actually fully supported, which we're about to get to, uh, is actually fully supported on Arena. If they'll just get rid of Explorer, because I don't know that there's really a home for both. Yeah, um, no, I don't think so. I wonder if they're doing the same with historic, though. If eventually, through anthologies and all those kinds of things, historic will match modern, or at least be uh, close enough that like all the top, you know, maybe five tiers of decks are represented there, and they'll be functionally the same format. Problem is, historic has alchemy cards, and I gotta say, every oh, time right. someone casts one of those, I, I do roll my eyes a little bit. <laughs> like, I knew I there was know. a reason I wasn't playing historic. I forgot that it was that. <laughs> yeah, it's not that bad. There's a couple of cards on there that are that are seeing a lot of play that are really egregious alchemy designs, but um, most of the the really awful ones are, I think, relegated to limited gone by. <laughs> You know, no one's clamoring to get to draft the alchemy release of Baldur's Gate again. I don't think that may literally never come back (laughs) for a flashback draft. And we'll be better off for it. Next up, we have a new plane again. So we went from Outlaws of Thunder Junction. MH3 is kind of an extra one thrown in there. Then we go to Bloomborough. Bloomborough is a totally new new plane that's essentially just a bunch of critters, like really small, (laughs) like mammals. There is not a single humanoid not just human, but humanoid on the entire planet. They're all, every creature on the planet is an anthropomorphic animal. (laughs) I love it. I think that's hilarious. I can't wait to get to draft squirrels again. Like we did that in MH2. I'm, I think, I I don't remember if it was a pre-show or right here, but 
I want to see Chatterfang get a spark ignite or something like Planeswalker <laughs> Chatterfang would be hilarious. Um, I don't know if Chatterfang is from Bloomboro or not. We don't, I don't know that we got like lore implications about where some of these legends that we got in MH2 are from, but if I had to guess, I mean, Bloomboro seems like a good spot for him. Um, yeah, I'm, I think this is going to be funny. It's going to be a cute set. I think it's going to be an interesting one to get like kids involved in. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of for it. Yeah, it should be good. Then we have a complete 180 as we go to Duskmorn House of Horror, which is a top down what they're framing as modern horror instead of gothic horror. It's more like 70s, 80s horror movie inspired. Um, the entire thing apparently takes place inside a mansion. Yeah, how are they going to print one giant mansion? How are they going to print basics? How do you make no a plains idea. or a mountain inside of, I don't know. We'll see what they come up with. Maybe it'll, I don't know. Maybe they'll, they'll get creative with that, but the whole thing apparently takes place inside a giant haunted mansion. So, uh, some of the, the promo art, you know, it's got the horror juice, you know, it, it looks pretty scary. We'll see what they come up with. There's a big moth thing. Uh, should sure, be good. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm a little more excited for Bloomboro personally. Duskmorn, sometimes the magic horror IPs tend to blend a little bit, like Olgrotha and also Innistrad. And then, I don't know, it got a little messy when we had Eldritch Horror mixed with like Gothic Horror back with the uh, like Eldritch Moonblock. But I don't know. By that point, it'll be a while since we've had a, a, a real horror theme set. Hopefully, it's also mechanically distinct enough from like Murders at Karlov Manor. Hopefully that whole yeah. plane isn't set in the manor. I don't think we can do two house themed sets in the same year. That might get a little stale. <laughs> well, they're like almost a year apart. Yeah, no, I guess yeah. they're like half a year apart, aren't they? And uh, as far as you know, mini sets, we thought we'd mention here that a secret layer angels commander deck, uh, not a real set, but you know, just a deck. Uh, it drops probably by the time this episode is out. It might even already be gone. I don't know how secret layers. I don't know how long they stay up, but. Uh, looks like value-wise, it was actually kind of worth it. it. Had a bunch of high-priority angel reprints. I'll probably wait and buy some singles from uh, when those decks inevitably get bought and scrapped for parts. But uh, I do want that that uh, Gisela and Bruna. Th- those new flip arts, they look awesome. Yeah, they do. All right, on to Arena. So we've still got a ton of stuff to get through here, but this is we're basically coming up. September is, marks the five-year anniversary for Arena, so they've announced a whole bunch of new stuff for Arena. Um, they're putting a better emphasis on the new player experience. I don't really know what that means, but cool, I guess, if it makes it easier for new players to get into Arena. Um, Wilds of Eldraine, which also drops in September, is going to bring updated duplicate protection, which is pretty incredible. Um, hopefully that means you won't open your 13th, like, uh, I don't know, freaking opt or uh <laughs> yeah i don't know like you know like they've had they've had some bad issues with the duplicate protection when they print the same card in multiple sets you now have like mm-hmm. 18 copies of that card um so hopefully this updated duplicate protection will fix that i wonder if they're going to retroactively like give people back vault progress or stuff for commons and uncommons i don't know they're also bringing a new achievement system into arena which i'm a big fan of because i am an achievement hunter and i like uh like 100 things so i'm i'm excited to see what the achievement system looks like we mentioned also that we're getting Ravnica remastered, but that won't be on Arena. We are getting Innistrad remastered the following year. So Ravnica remastered, I think, is dropping in like January, February of 2024. Innistrad remastered should come a year later, so 2025. And we'll go through some of the the, um, the dates on these things in a little bit. Um, but more exciting to me, by the end of this year, we're getting the full cons of Tarkir block on Arena. Yeah. 
what Give is notably Konzatark here is we are getting Siege Rhino. I know you're super excited about that. But what is commonly referred to as at least one of the top three, if not the best draft set ever, Cons of Tarkir, yeah. will be available on Arena. I am so pumped. Yep, this will be a good one. Uh, very excited to see how they do this. And honestly, Arena as a game, you know, if you look at it separate from Magic, Arena as a client, it's been making some solid improvements in the last couple months. We finally got uh, default arts um, or like preferred basics. Uh, they're, they're improving things with cosmetics so you can have like better skins and emotes and stuff like that. They're, they're on the right path. It's just... It's just slow, you know, and I don't work in software, so maybe it does actually take this much time to do all this. But uh, if they could pick up the pace a little and keep putting out good stuff, then I'll be very happy with what Arena's doing. I'm still pretty happy with what it what, it, what it's at right now. Yeah, we did just say Modern Horizons 3, of course, will be fully Arena draftable. Hopefully it's a really good set. Looking forward to that. Um, they did announce by the end of 2024, we should have a tournament ready Pioneer on the on the client. So Arena should have the full Pioneer set or full Pioneer format, rather, on Arena. And I think they're going to wrap that up with Pioneer Masters, which will be exactly what it sounds like. Draftable set. It's going to fill in the gaps on Arena for the Pioneer cards that weren't able to get printed in between uh, now and then. Um, and then they'll add you know other cards through anthologies, and Ravnica Remastered is probably going to add a handful of them as well. Um, Innistrad Remastered likely will, will add others as well. Um so what does that mean? They're going to just going to maybe towards the end of 2024, take a look at the top pioneer decks, break them down into draft archetypes and then make a set around them. I'm guessing that's, that's what they're going to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, modern horizons is functionally that, right? Yeah. Well, I guess they, yeah, they print new cards kinda, in, modern, it, in the modern horizon sets too. So a master set, I guess feels like, yeah, they're not really going to do any reprint or they're not going to, they're only going to do reprints. Something I'm curious to see how they work with. They mentioned that they want to integrate arena and tabletop play. I love to see a lot more of that uh, as yeah, I like both. Absolutely. They said they're going to make it so that you can earn in-game XP by playing in paper events. I want to see even more than that. I want to see maybe yeah. uh, prize codes that can be redeemed both in person or packs that when you get them in person, you get a code that automatically redeems a pack online. I don't know. Absolutely. I think they could ramp that up. I, I have, and I, I'm not just myself, right? This is something the whole internet has been on about since arena was in beta they should be putting like the token slot in packs should have like a 90 percent chance to just be or even maybe on the back of tokens or whatever or just as an extra card in packs in every pack they should have a code to redeem a pack in the arena client if you yeah. get a pack in person you should get a pack in the game pokemon has done this for like ages and it <laughs> it works really well it's really nice you feel great you'll sell more paper product because people are more interested maybe you'll sell less digital product but people still need gems to play events and stuff so like it's guaranteed ev who wants to buy gems to buy packs unless you're i guess a, a constructed grinder or something and you're really just trying to get up uh your standard collection or something i don't know i i think they should just put those in every pack hopefully this is a step in that direction again i don't know why it's taking them so long to make moves like this but Glad to see that we're finally getting them. I will say I read, we didn't put it in the show notes here, but I did read and Ben, keep me honest here. Maybe I, I read this from the wrong source or misread it or made it up, but I'm pretty sure I read on one of the threads I was looking at yesterday that they made comments about multiplayer being available in the they near, did. near term future, like the next couple of years. Did they give a date on that? I think this was in their like very vague hand wavy stuff about like late 2025, 2026, but they were saying they wanted to make sure they're still appealing 
to a wide range of players and figuring out what digital experience people were missing and how they could provide it. And one digital experience they said they knew people were missing was multiplayer and that they were looking for alternatives to help bring in people that might be intimidated by 1v1 formats like standard or limited. Um, Maybe they're looking for like a better PvE mode, which I don't think many hardcore limited fans will really care too much about. Uh, I don't think I, I would. Maybe I'd try it. You know, I, I come to play magic to, to play against people. So I hope they don't skew too far in the wrong direction there. However, if they go for a multiplayer thing, that'd be pretty cool. I don't know what that would look like. It would obviously take a lot of work to put that on arena. And I wouldn't expect it in any time in the near future if it's not, you know, high on their radar. Uh, but maybe someday we can get some actual four player brawl games. Could be cool. Yeah, I will say, um, you know, I, I played Legends of Runeterra for quite a while and they had a PVE sort of draft mode where rather than like opening, you know, in, in magic terms, like a full pack and taking a card from the pack and moving on, you would open, you'd have three tiny packs. So in, in Legends of Runeterra, you have to pick a hero and then like your, your cards are playing to, or not a hero, a, um, like a region and your cards instead of colors, they're like part of that region. So, but you would anyway, you'd open, you'd open like three, you'd be presented with three tiny packs that had like three or four cards in it. And you'd have to pick one of the packs. So you draft like a mini pack and then you'd play games and then you'd add cards to your deck after every game or so. I could see them doing a cool sort of mode like that. If they wanted to bring in like a limited PVE style of, of thing, I think that could be fun. It'd be very different and it wouldn't be draft per se, but I could see it being a new PVE limited format that that would be pretty fun. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't hate to see that. So let's chat about some universes beyond now. (laughs) (laughs) All right, next. Uh, I want to preface this section by saying overall, uh, an ideology that I've taken to heart recently is uh, kill not the part of you that's cringe, but the part of you that cringes, right? Uh, <laughs> if people are going to love this stuff, then people are going to love this stuff. And I loved Lord of the Rings. And like I thought this was a great set. It's unique. It's fun. They crushed it with the flavor. And I happen to love Lord of the Rings. Now, that means I have to be open to full sets where I don't know or care about, you know, the IP that it's based on. And looking at the next couple of years, there's a good number of those. So, you know, I got to I got to eat my shoe on this one. Like, (laughs) I I, I, uh, I don't know. Let's dig into it a little bit. There are a bunch. Lord of the Rings was obviously the big one. It was the first time they did a full set in Universes Beyond. But we got like Jurassic World. They did explicitly say it's not Jurassic Park. It's like the newer Jurassic World trilogy. Hopefully it has mostly stuff from the originals. Uh, The Jurassic World movies. Not not winning any Oscars anytime soon, um, no. but they're going to get two secret layer drops and they're also going to be available in packs, sort of like the uh, like the, the Godzilla stuff was in Ikoria or how Transformers cards are just kind of slotted in. Sounds like there might be some mechanical like unique ones in here. Pre-existing cards. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so mostly mostly skin stuff. Um, Doctor Who, which I was a big fan of Doctor Who in high school. I, I've since you know, moved along a little bit, but I can appreciate some of these Doctor Who commander decks that they're releasing. Uh, this is old news by this point, but uh, they're also they mentioned that they're going to be uh, revisiting Lord of the Rings towards the holiday season with some new releases, including a couple new cards like mechanically unique ones, uh, some new card designs, you know, just reskins of existing ones like Sauron. They pr- showed a pretty cool all art for. And then some of these scenes, these uh, 
these like big multi-card panels uh, where you could, if you wanted to collect all of them, frame them, it would look beautiful together. Uh, I don't have a problem with any of this stuff. This also just seems like extra product that, you know, probably could have predicted it was coming. Yeah, I'm taking the same approach to Universes Beyond as I am to Secret Layers. If they print one that is for you, great. I'm glad you feel included. Go nuts. Uh, if they print one yeah. for you that you don't care about, ignore it. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, <laughs> this is a, a kind of funny tie-in. I guess it's not technically Universes Beyond, but sort of. Uh, alongside the release of the Ravnica Murder Mystery set, they're releasing Ravnica Murder Mystery Clue. Like the board game Clue. But it's not, though. They said it's not Clue and it's not magic. It's like it's like a plane chase sort of thing where it's a variant of magic. It's like a variant of Clue and magic smashed together. So it's not actually just the Clue board game that has a, like a, a magic skin on it. It's a different game entirely. I'm reminded of the quote from Always Sunny where uh, when they're talking about, I don't know, People that don't know Always Sunny just skip ahead around 20 seconds. But uh, it's at the the McPoyle Ponderosa wedding massacre when uh, the McPoyles are talking about, you know, how their bloodline has been tainted. But then I think Liam McPoyle realizes that it's not the bloodline of the McPoyles that's being tainted. It's the McPoyles tainting the bloodline of the world. So I'm going to choose to look at this through this lens, right? Don't think of this as magic being sullied with other IPs. Think of this as magic sullying the world with its IP. <laughs> now Clue has been infected with magic. We're the ones doing the spreading. You know, it's not other things spreading in. So yeah. I, I'm okay with this one too. I may or may not care. I'm or excited play it, for but. this one. I think I'm probably going to, well, I mean, we'll have to see. I, I'm hesitantly excited. We'll see what it actually turns out to be. Like I said, in the announcement for it, they said it's not Clue and it's not magic. It's a variation of both of them kind of smashed together. I'm a big fan of like clue style games. I like strategy games and I like those kind of murder mystery vibes. Um, I'm hoping this has like cool plane chase kind of vibes to it as well. And it's just going to be a lot of fun at the very least. It should be a totally different way to experience magic. And I'm kind of here for that. That's true. Maybe it'll help us, you know, like leverage some of our existing magic skills while maybe letting us pull in some people that wouldn't usually play magic, but they would play clue. That could be cool. Next up is one that I honestly don't care about that much. This might hurt some some feelings when I say it, but the Fallout stuff, uh, the Fallout pre-con commander decks. Um, from this point on, we're, we're pretty vague with the information. They're not giving a lot of specifics like how many or the dates or, um, you know, mechanics or anything. But honestly, a lot of them are probably still up in the air. Uh, others seem pretty excited about this. Magic Twitter seems to be you know pumped about this. I, I can recognize that Fallout is probably a great franchise. I haven't touched a game, though, so... This one, um, I think, is just going to slip by me. Yeah, same. I think typically when they've done these, like for Warhammer 40K, and then I think again for Doctor Who, they're doing like four commander decks when they do these. But um, Mm -hmm. again, hey, if you're a big Fallout fan and you like magic, these might be for you. Pick them up. Now, my only issue is that when these certain cards from these uh, decks, which are mechanically unique, start to become super ubiquitous and like almost required to play in certain commander decks. Like, I don't know, there there was a a certain card from one of the Warhammer 40k decks that um, became like really good for red counters decks. And I play Halana and Elena and I just I, I would never put a Warhammer 40k card into you know, my pure magic IP that then my deck is becoming infected with the blood of others. So, um, th- th- then I sort of take a little bit of issue with it, but as long as it's not like breaking vintage or something, then, uh, and really getting a spotlight on it, I, I guess I don't care that much. 
Yeah. I mean, that kind of stuff to me really only matters if you care about like going into like CEDH leagues and like actually trying to put up numbers. And it's like, that's the clearly best card for that slot in the deck. Yeah. And it, yeah. then it bothers me. But when you're just playing in pods, like I don't really care. Don't run it. If that's, if it's not your thing, don't run it. That's fine. Um, yeah. We are seeing a lot more of these like commander deck kind of driven uh, paths for the universes beyond products. I'm fine with that. Again, they're kind of concealed in their own thing. Um, sure. Some of these cards are mechanically unique, which I'm not a huge fan of them doing that. Uh, but I guess it is what it is. And again, you don't have to run those cards in your decks and you don't have to pick these decks up if you don't want them. Um, the secret layer, kind of the same thing. We're going to be seeing a bunch of those continuing. I don't think they really plan to stop secret layers anytime soon. Um, and then we are getting some other full sets. There's an entire final fantasy set coming mm-hmm. that will be just like Lord of the Rings. And the fact that it was like a whole draftable set. Um, I'm not a massive final fantasy fan either, but this actually was interesting to me because a few episodes ago and probably quite a bit more than that now, at least a couple of months ago, I think now Ben and I had talked about whether they would do a crossover with Disney and have like kingdom. I was talking about kingdom hearts in that episode and I would love to see like kingdom hearts brought in. Uh, as a universes beyond thing. And we were saying, well, they probably won't do that because Disney has their own TCG, but so does final fantasy and they're doing it now. Disney doesn't own final fantasy, but final fantasy does have its own TCG and they, they are doing cross IP here. It might just be such that final fantasy is trying to leverage magic's IP and magic's fan base to get more eyes on final fantasy and maybe, maybe raise awareness for its own TCG. I could see potentially Disney trying to do the same, but, um, it's just interesting to see a game that like uh, uh, an IP that already has its own dedicated card game is crossing over with magic. And I don't know what that has, says implications wise for the future, but mm-hmm. Star Wars, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think the general population of maybe nerd fandoms, I think there's definitely a bit of multiverse fatigue happening. We've seen it with the MCU. Oh, yeah. We've seen it with other movies. Um DC barely even got off the ground before their multiverse kind of got stomped into the dirt by everything else. Uh, so I, I like what magic's doing here, but I don't know that they got, they found the Midas touch, right? Like they're, they're, they're going nuts. They're printing all these things, but they're hitting some big ones right away. Right. Doctor who Lord of the Rings. These are huge. Uh, what happens when they get worse? You know, I, I think it's valid to have our current opinions, which are like, you know, it's good for the people to like them. Good for not. But at some point, we might have to dial back and reevaluate. We'll, we'll see where they go with this, but for now it seems acceptable. Yeah. And I think, you know, they, they're wizards of the coast is printing money. Like, like yeah. nobody before, honestly, like it's, it's ridiculous when you see like Hasbro bring out their, their like quarterly numbers and stuff. Wizards is making up like 80% of Hasbro's revenue right now. Wow. Wizards is doing crazy. I hope that means they're also expanding, providing jobs and that these universes beyond teams are growing and they're not taking away from the teams that are creating quote unquote magic specific content or IP. Like what does that even mean anymore? Products. <laughs> um, because I would, I would really hate to see, and they they were explicit about this at the Gen Con uh, panel. They are still putting focus into the magic story, trying to continue to make the magic IP as strong as it can be. I would really hate to see, you know, sets coming out that clearly weren't tested properly and things like that because yeah. they're putting too much attention on these universes beyond products. That's where I would start to get really upset. One last universes beyond note that we got spoiled: an Assassin's Creed non-draftable booster. These, these are calling Beyond Boosters. Sounds like they're just packs of non-draftable cards themed after Assassin's Creed. These ones are going to be modern legal. So functionally the same thing as Lord of the Rings, except not a full set release, 
They're just boosters and you can't draft them. This is the first thing that starts to offend me a little bit. A non-draftable booster. Yeah, we've gotten those before, right? And like I mean, set, set boosters, and collector, collector boosters. boosters. That, yeah. So if these are just that, then it may as well just be a secret layer, right? But the fact that these are going straight into modern, is this going to be like a modern horizons thing? I, I don't really enjoy the Assassin's Creed games very much. I think a lot of them are uh, kind of garbage, but um, <laughs> I don't know. EA, EA and I go way back. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think I agree with you. This is another one that like rubs me the wrong way when we ta- start talking about mechanically unique stuff. Like if I don't, if I've been playing modern for years and they print a new, like let's say I've been playing modern humans for like a decade and they print some new crazy one drop human, like Ezio Auditore or something on the level and, of like Orcish Bowmasters, right? Right. Something ubiquitous. that's just like it's an it's an instant auto four of in yeah. every mono white humans deck or white humans deck or whatever. And I have to play Ezio Auditore in all of my in my like modern decks. I'm going to be kind of upset if it's a skin on top of a card that they're also printing. Like they're printing a mechanically unique card, but they're doing it in a Magic fr- format and an Assassin's Creed format, and one is just like a skin over the other. They're the same card, but you know, like we've seen with the Godzilla stuff and we've seen with transformers and whatever. Um, I'm, I'm fine with that. I just really don't like that. They, they make these like mechanically unique universes beyond stuff that gets injected into formats that we've been used to for a long time. Make, just make like, a, yeah. if you're going to do that, just make a universes beyond format. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I, only those cards are legal. You can't play any actual magic cards that are just all <laughs> universes beyond cards. I almost see like legacy and vintage, which I believe that they're all legal in a lot of the commander ones, for example. Um, I, I don't get why this Assassin's Creed one has to be modern legal. I don't see why it couldn't have the same legality yeah, as weird. some of the like, other ones. How do they decide on this? Is it just like, yeah, totally like arbitrary? And they're just like, yeah, let's just make this one modern legal. Why not? Yeah. What are they going to like reprint the the evoke elementals in this? Like uh, otherwise it's like a little baby modern masters, right? Or modern horizons rather. Uh I don't, I'm actually kind of okay with all of these, uh, as long as they remain like legacy vintage legal, because then they can just go like, sure. Someone will try to put, uh, Rick steadfast leader into their, their like mono white humans deck where it'll just get stomped by like lotuses and and ancestrals and right. Like magic will, magic will always have these tier decks where like, you know, the, the, the format changes of course. Right. But uh, there will always be these, like, I don't know, signposts of, of uh, old magic, right? And no, I don't know, no random commander card has a good chance of breaking in. Like, n- none of the Doctor Who cards have a great chance of becoming, like, a vintage legacy staple, right? But then uh, when they know. start, I mean, like... I guess with modern design language, probably not. But they could print mm-hmm. something that is, like, a better version of Ancestral that's just, like, I don't know, some some Dalek or something. Well, yeah, but, and then we get like Orcish Bowmasters, and maybe people that don't like Lord of the Rings are having the same conversation, except Lord of the Rings, Orcish Bowmasters and the one ring are the things that are irking them. And again, we don't see it as a huge problem because maybe it's just because we like Lord of the Rings and it does feel pretty well, but you know, on brand for magic, the, the one ring I can see people having the same argument. Orcish Bowmasters could have just been a magic card. There's nothing about yeah, that card that is yeah, Lord of the Rings specific. Honestly, it could get reprinted on like Dominaria, right? And yeah, just literally the same card. Not not a variant of it, but just Orcish Bowmasters again reprint. Yeah, absolutely. Orcs might be trademarked. I don't know. They might have to work around that, but I'm sure they could find a way. <laughs> no, Orcs are, but there have definitely been Orcs in Magic before. Yeah, yeah, okay. Anyway, a- after all this, they kind of rapid fired off some ideas for 2025. So 
these are just ideas, right? It was pretty cool to get a, a behind the scenes look into these sets that are still actively in production. One of those was Innistrad Remastered. Uh, that'll be cool. That's like, you know, the usual Dominary Remastered we're getting, uh, we already had. Ravnica Remastered is coming, and then this will be Innistrad Remastered, so a full remaster of all the Innistrad sets, which there haven't been that many, e- even compared to Ravnica and Dom. But it'll still be fun. You know, Lily of the Veil will be in it. Snapcaster will be in it. Grizzlebrand, Avacyn, all these big hitters that we all love. I'll enjoy this set a lot. I love a, love a good Innistrad. But then after that, we get into the really interesting ones. So uh, the first one is a set called Codename Tennis. Uh, it's a death race set. And it's this is maybe one of the ones I'm more excited for. Honestly, all these 2025 ones I'm more excited for than the, uh, the ones in 2024. This is a death race set that takes place across several planes. Two of them are apparently planes that we have been to but have not returned to. And then one is an existing plane that we've heard of but haven't you know, gotten a set themed around it. So it seems like this will be using the omen paths to race through multiple planes in the same set. So this might be the first time where we get like a standard release, uh, at least in a long time. Uh, besides some of the old like weird portal stuff uh, where the there's not just one single plane that we're, we're dealing with. One of them has got to be Kaladesh, right? It's a racing set. Even some of the promo art. Not, yeah. Yeah. One, one of the promo arts looked like flywheel flywheel racer. It was clearly themed in like the Kaladesh art style, but the other one looked like a Mad Max style, like big revving engine with like, I don't know, like hardcore. It could be anything. I, who knows where that's going to be from as Maybe. I wouldn't be surprised if Asgol was just Mad Max dot plane. Yeah, like heavy metal. Like th- that'll be pretty yeah. cool. The next one is Codename Ultimate. This is the, uh, as they described, the best of both worlds for Tark here, where we're going to get a whole bunch of stuff that relates to the cons, a whole bunch of stuff that relates to dragons. So, and favorite forge be damned here. because they, they, they explicitly <laughs> mentioned they were smashing cons and dragons together and they just kind of ignored favorite forge. But, uh, that's cool. I mean, yeah, we're going back to Tarkir. I'm excited to see how that ends up with uh, all this mom stuff that happened on Tarkir. Yeah, that'll be around the Dragonstorm part, right? So who knows what'll be happening? Maybe the, the Dragonstorm will be back on Tarkir. Who knows? Then we'll get the Final Fantasy set release, uh, which will apparently have, you know, all types of boosters in arena play. Sounds like the whole Lord of the Rings for that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, they mentioned that the arena team uh, wants to continue expanding by that point they said maybe by that point they'll be looking at the multiplayer or uh maybe a different way to do pve uh, we'll see what they have done by them now after that is the code name volleyball which is from the arc that is they can't say uh, because it's censored because it's a spoiler but this is a space opera and if you didn't get to see the the concept art for this you gotta go see it this is stuff straight out of star wars I don't know how they're going to port magic into this, but people weren't sure how they're going to do Kamigata Neon Dynasty. And I think we can all agree that set was awesome. So however they're going to do it, I trust them. The interesting thing with this one is from what I read, the plane itself that this set takes place on is space. So it's not, it's not <laughs> like it's... And, and like, I think we tend to think about... At least I tend to think about planes as like kind of like planets, right? Like they're their own... Uh-huh. like thing but they all exist in the same multiverse this is literally in space like all the concept art and stuff like we're we're not just on a plane that exists in space the plane is space <laughs> maybe it's in the blind eternities or maybe this will turn out to be like the space because 
you know, not to bring out the astrophysics degree, but we know that some of the uh, some planes do have celestial bodies, right? For example, Innistrad's moon is made of moon silver, right? So if that thing has moon, we know it has a lunar cycle. So there's clearly some sort of three body system where there's at least sure. one light source, uh, the plane, which, uh, well, I don't know if there's an eclipse that happens there, we can maybe learn a little more about the shape of the plane. Um, and, and then some sort of moon, right? So there's got to be space around it. Maybe this takes place in the space around an existing plane, or it's in the blind eternities, or it's just its own thing. I don't know. I, I, I'm a space guy. This one will be awesome. Yep. And then we wrap up that 2025 year with Codename Wrestling, which is a return to Lorwyn, which was basically all the information we got about it. But hey, we're going back <laughs> to Lorwyn, which I think has been one that folks have been wanting to come back to for a long time, and we've never gotten a return to Lorwyn. After that, Codelame uh, Yachting in 2026, we're going back to Arcavios, back to Strixhaven. Maybe they go talk to the Archaics that live outside the school, or is Liliana still teaching there? Is she stuck there now? Um, I think we saw that she was there, right? So who knows what's coming she up sparked. with that? I think so, yeah. We didn't get a card for her, I don't believe. Maybe we no. did. And then finally, uh, we have Codename Ziplining in 2026. Uh, this is supposed to be the War of the Spark or Martian Machine style capstone event. The finale to this big three-year story. And Morrow explicitly said he's not going to tell us the theme, the villain, the setting. All of that would be too big spoilers. But he did say that he specifically requested to design lead this set. So he's got something big planned. And uh, that's it. We've never really gotten to look this far ahead in Magic before. I mean... We have the entire next arc. We're going to be doing some little mice and rodents and going uh, for like a hardcore thrill ride through several planes and space and uh, multiple new planes, multiple old ones. I don't know. It, it, so, overall, I'm excited. Looks like good stuff. I am as well. I think, um, A, I'm kind of glad they did this like three-year forecasting thing. Clearly, the stuff that's 2025 beyond is still kind of subject to change. Like oh, yeah. none of it is really set in stone. I think the, the general themes that we heard about are, are going to be what they are. I don't know that they have enough time now to like completely change those things, but typically we only get basically like the next year, maybe year and a half worth of sets uh, coming out. And so really cool to see all the way through 2024, pretty much in totality. Like we got all the sets for all of next year announced. Um, for sure. And then we've got a bunch of like glimpses into 25 and 26. Um, I'm very curious how this first like Omen paths arc is going to tie into the rest of it. it. They did a good job, frankly, of like telling us exactly what we're getting next year without telling us anything about what we're getting next year. So yeah, um, yeah. I actually think they did a really good job with that. I don't understand how Bloomboro is supposed to tie in story-wise to anything at all. <laughs> so yeah, it's going to be really interesting. <laughs> um, I kind of wish they spread out some of the new planes a little bit because we are going to get, well, I guess they're kind of doing that. The death race set is going to be enough that like we're getting a handful of, of, uh, of planes in that one set. So that'll be nice. That'll feel a little bit different. We're going back to Tarkir. Then we're going back to, well, then we go space opera. Then we go back to Lorwyn, back to Arcavios. And then probably the last set with the capstone, I'm thinking maybe that's on a new plane. Although they've done all the previous capstone stuff on pre-existing planes. So maybe not. I don't know. Honestly, the one thing that they didn't talk too much about that I would have liked to see a little more of was competitive play. I know this wasn't really oh, for yeah. that. This was more like along the lines of story, planes, where we're going, what we're doing. Uh, but this all looks like it's in good hands, right? Like I'm not concerned or nothing's going off the rails. 
Uh, I'm sure Magic Twitter didn't respond to any of this in like an over-the-top vitriolic fashion. They're, they never do that, right? Uh, no, we're, these are Magic players we're talking about. Yeah, right. Everyone's always very measured and has reasonable takes. So uh, <laughs> I think uh, it's good to you know compliment Wizards when they're doing stuff right. And um, for all the gripes that people tend to have against Wizards, it's usually against the people setting the prices. And it's usually against people determining product release schedules. But it's not Mark Rosewater, right? It's not the people that are you know pouring design, their heart and no. soul. Yeah, the, the design team has always been great. They've uh, they've been bringing on more and more cultural consultants. Um, representation in the game is probably at an all time high. Um, I think it's it's a game that can be accessed by just about anyone in any way they want, whether it's for total casual play or as hardcore competitive grinding as you can get. So I think it's in a it's in a good spot. I just you know hope to continue to see limited. Uh, who can I, what, what can I say? We have the arena opens. I can't even complain <laughs> as long as they just keep doing they, they could just keep doing arena opens as is for the rest of time. And I don't think I could criticize competitive limited that much. Well, and they've done the new, like the RCQ sort of thing and these like qualifier play-ins and such yeah. online. Like I think, I think competitive plays actually in a pretty good spot though. I would love to see them do a better job of like advertising some of these things. Cause like, I, <laughs> yeah, like the fact that there was a modern pro tour last weekend, like I just, totally missed that until it happened and i was like oh this is a mm-hmm. thing like i remember i used to be very pumped for every pro tour and now i just like maybe it's maybe i've gotten older and i'm just don't care as much but i also just feel like i don't even know when they're happening so um yeah they could do a better job of that before we sign off here i did want to just do a quick recap because we talked about a ton of stuff let's just recap what's coming out in 2024 so you can keep this stuff on your radar listener um so to start q1 of of 2024 we've got ravnica remastered which won't be on arena but will be in paper murders at Karlov Manor, which is a quote unquote proper standard set. Like it's one of our normal standard sets for Q1 um, will be on arena. We've got the fallout commander decks and then to Q2, we get outlaws of thunder junction, the new wild west esque set and modern horizons three. And then for Q3, we get the Assassin's Creed, I think, boost weird like booster things. Yeah, uh, whatever. Bloomborough <laughs> and Duskmorn. So that's an interesting one because we're getting two standard legal sets in the same quarter, which we don't normally get, or they're usually one set per quarter. So I think the last time this happened was, um, the, the Innistrad midnight hunt Val thing Mm. where we had like two kind of right next to each other. Um, so we'll see how that goes. These are totally different planes, totally different sets, totally different vibes. (laughs) One is very cheery presumably, and one is very not. So we'll see how that works out. We don't have like a proper timeline for Q4, although, um, they did tell us, well, I guess Dusk, Duskborn was the last set they gave us explicitly for Q4, uh, for, for, for 2024. So maybe they know something that we don't, maybe there's only three quarters that year. <laughs> well, I think, I think probably codename tennis comes at the end of Q4. No, it's supposed to be 2025. I don't know. I feel like there was a set missing somewhere. We'll figure it out. Eh. I'm sure, I'm sure <laughs> they'll show us something. Um, but yeah, anyway, for any of these details, uh, we do have a spoiler season channel in the discord. So you can kind of check those things out. Uh, folks are talking about all of these new sets and different bits of information that we got released in there. So do jump in the discord and check that out. If you haven't already link to that is in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page. And if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft pod. Again, huge thanks to everybody who supports us over there. We really appreciate it, but that's it for us. And we'll catch you next week. All right. We're almost pushing two hours. So I don't know. I don't know how long this Oppenheimer uh, (laughs) uh, thoughts unpacking is going to go, but let's get into it. What did you think? 
first of all, just a phenomenal movie. I mean, cinematography was incredible. The way he like incorporated the, the different, um, clips of like, uh, like uh, waves, like atomic waves, I guess. And like different space bits and different bits of explosions and stuff just in the random cuts to like what Oppenheimer's thinking about really, really cool. Um, the color grading in this movie was incredible. I'm still not entirely sure the significance of why and spoilers, by the way, um, just throwing that out there. If you don't want spoilers, maybe turn off, uh, this sign off here, but, um, I haven't quite figured out this. I think I need to watch it one or two more times or maybe just watch a, uh, an interview with, with Nolan. I haven't quite figured out the significance of why all of the Lewis Strauss scenes are in black and white and all the Oppenheimer scenes are in color. Do you want to know? For the, except for the first one. Cause the first, the first one where we see Strauss trying to give Oppenheimer the job at the Institute, that one's in black and white in the beginning. And then at the end it's in color. Yeah. Uh, d- d- do you want to hear? Cause yeah, I, yeah, I didn't what, know. What is it? I didn't honestly, I, I think either one of us would have picked this up after like a rewatch. But um, I learned about it from, you know, reading people's thoughts on it online after watching the movie. Uh, the black and white is uh, objective. It's what actually factually happened, at least in uh, okay. the universe of the movie. But the color was subjective. So kind of makes sense because we often saw color while Oppenheimer was, you know, yeah, on his screen. Yeah, it, that was like from his perspective. But the black and white was and, and this is even even within the movie itself. There are some creative liberties taken right i think uh, i think it was like the grandson of oppenheimer said something yeah with like, the apple scene yeah like that wasn't entirely true so nolan took some liberties here but within the world of the movie uh the black and white is objective the color is subjective according to oppenheimer and honestly like who, who would have thought that a functional biopic would have like twist villains and murder maybe murder well, suicide just, like that's just like um a testament to Nolan's writing ability. Like, I think that's something that people overlook a lot. Nolan writes all his own movies. Mm. Like he doesn't just direct. He's not just a phenomenal cinematographer. He writes them all as well. So yeah, this was, this was excellent. Like incredible. And this one was, I don't know if you caught this, but this one was actually based off of a book. So oh, he, oh, he wrote the huh. script based on a, on a biography about Oppenheimer. Um, hmm. So I'm sure some of the pieces came from that biography. I don't know whether the Apple one was, I know. Yeah. Again, uh, Oppenheimer's grandson kind of came out and was like, Hey, love the film, except there's no historical proof or evidence that Oppenheimer tried to kill somebody. And that's kind of a big claim to make about someone with no, no proof to back up that said. um, So was that in the book? Do you think that's my guess? I don't actually know. I don't think Nolan would just be like, Hey, let's just make him try to kill somebody. Cause why not? Um, Hmm. I would imagine there, if it wasn't in the book, Nolan's research about the the individual made him feel that character wise at that point in his life, that was something that could have made sense for him to do. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously he didn't end up doing it, but uh, like he got remorse and and came back and made sure that nobody actually got hurt. But um, yeah, so much, I mean, there's so much to break down with this movie. The the way they handled the the explosion scenes were like, you could see that happen first and then the sound hit. Like when the, when the a bomb, when they did the, the Trinity test, that whole sequence just like blew me away. Like no pun intended. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. The way they handled the silence and Oppenheimer, like pulling his goggles off and like watching the explosion and, and uh, such good cinematography. It's just, mm-hmm. this might be, and I'm still kind of riding a high of having just seen it, but this might be Nolan's magnum opus. I, I would agree. I think it is the best thing he's made. A um, couple things that stood out to me, the score, 
excellent. Really oh, strong so score. Good. Yeah. So good. Uh, there were a couple points where it did kind of fall back into just kind of like background piano music. And maybe like this is one of the few critiques that I have of this, but um, sometimes it was there and I feel like it didn't need to be. But when the score was there and doing its thing, uh, it was it was flooring. Right. Uh, some scenes from this movie, the one where he I think the use of, of when he starts to see uh, the effects of the bomb, like. Yes. In his hallucinations when he starts to see like when he like steps through the person's like shattered remains and when he's he's, like seeing the bomb going off during uh, that one uh, like hearing uh, just really fantastic stuff. And the fact that some people on, on Twitter that I saw were walking away from this wondering whether or not this movie approves of the bombings is just mind blowing to me that, that you could see, uh, what it did to this character who's almost made to be this like indecisive. So ultimately a failure, uh, indecisive in like romance and indecisive, yeah. uh, in taking a stand until it was too late. Like that's, that's kind of what I saw as, as Oppenheimer's like framing in this, um, acting, but, but too late after having, as the movie ends, having already destroyed the world. Like it's already, yeah. you know, by in doing this, you've already doomed it. Um, just like with his relationships and with some of his friendships and other things in his personal life. So uh, this was a surprisingly anti-war movie for being about the creation of the atomic bomb. And uh, just as, as an aside from the physics perspective, uh, this guy, Nolan, he loves scientists, you know? Oh, it's <laughs> so, yeah, it's so good. Like, like you look at like his work in Interstellar and like how yeah, accurate yeah. some of this. I mean, I know some of it wasn't quite accurate, but he got pretty accurate for a movie about stuff. Oh, yeah, no, never been able to observe. <laughs> I, I teach some aspects of it in my astronomy class. Um, and I, I do want to rewatch this, but uh, as someone who honestly historical fiction and even historical nonfiction is maybe one of my least favorite genres of things. History just never really did it for me. The one exception to that has always been historical science. And I've always had like an interest. I've always found that that's what, what gets me for history, the, the science history, because it, you know, it tells similar stories to things that I know today. Um, I guess I yeah, find one, it more relatable. And, th- and this, this storyteller, yeah, when a good storyteller decides to focus in on an individual, because let's be honest, nobody who dedicates their life to science is actually boring. Like I know there's like a stereotype no, that yeah. scientists are boring, <laughs> but like all of these people throughout history who have completely dedicated their life to a particular field of study are actually quite interesting. They have all these weird quirks. They have all these For different sure. like unique qualities to them. And of course the obsession with their field is already in and of itself, something that's kind of interesting to, to watch and observe. Cause yeah. most of us don't have that level of like passion for something. Um, but that's what really gets me to love these types of movies is, is the, f- the story told about the person. Like I'm thinking like um, the theory of everything was another one that was like just really, really good. Um, the imitation game was another one that was like, and that, you know, that's more like computer science kind of computer engineering, which is up my alley, but again, really good storytelling. So it kind of made you feel for the characters and such, but yeah, I think, um, Nolan knocked it out of the park. Audio was all incredible. Visuals were incredible. Um, he loves to mess with time in his movies and this movie mm. is not chronological in no, any real capacity. No. It goes back and forth on timeline all the, all over the place. So, but the makeup effects were so good that it didn't oh, yeah. matter. Like, well, that it, was something I, I really loved too, that, that he did that helped kind of understand the timeline. Mm-hmm. Cause again, when Nolan does like timeline stuff, he typically doesn't give you indicators 
Like there's nothing on screen. He doesn't use like on screen text effects to say, like, no, this is no. the year we're in, or this is the, <laughs> he just jumps. It's just like a jump cut from one timeline to the other. And this movie, he did a phenomenal job with like, you know, what era or re what, what part of the timeline they're in based on how the characters look, because they, mm-hmm. he did such a good job with prosthetics and like aging effects to make them look very different age wise throughout the film. Uh, I think that was really well done. There are some really like disturbing scenes in terms of just like, like I'm thinking the, um, the scene where they are in the interrogation room, I guess, for lack of better phrasing. Mm-hmm. And he like reveals that he had an affair with, um, with Jean. And then like, suddenly like his white kitty is like watching them have sex in the, Oh in the yeah. He's the, naked there in the middle. I thought yeah, that was, it was just like very jarring. It's just like, Whoa. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, also terrifying because like Gene was just like staring at Kitty, just like <laughs> it was like really weird, yeah. But it was such a it did such a great job of portraying the emotions of the scene. I, I never thought it right. came off as like hokey or, or tacky. Um, it, it's funny. I think both in this summer we got the most Wes Anderson Wes Anderson movie and maybe the most Christopher Nolan Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah, and there are a couple of good movies coming up. I actually, I got, I, I think I mentioned in a previous episode, I was debating getting AMCA list. I did oh, get did it, get it? This mo- just to see this movie, nice. which ended up working out because I saw it with a friend and I ended up booking both tickets and one ticket was about the cost of the monthly fee for AMCA. Got list. So, <laughs> um, and you can see three movies a week with it. It's like almost as good as the old movie pass. That's pretty, you got to go see Barbie now. And honestly, I the know. new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie, uh, that, that started to look pretty good too. Looks like a fun well, one of the benefits thing. of having a list is that like, I'm probably just going to go start seeing movies that I otherwise wouldn't see just because it doesn't cost me anything extra to do it. Yeah. Um, cool. Which I'm hoping gets me exposed to like different types of movies. The, um, the new now I'm, I'm just like totally ranting here. We can end the show here, but, uh, the new, um, Christi, uh, Oh gosh, my brain is breaking on her first name. The the new Agatha Christie. Is it just Christie? Okay. Yeah. Chris, Agatha Christie. Christie Ag- yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, movie haunting in Venice is looking very interesting. Mm. I haven't read that, so I don't know what, what to expect, but based on the, the past two movies they've done of her work, um, I've been a fan. So, uh, interested to see what that's like. 